a couple of things to say before we start, lah. Okay. Um, the issue that we're looking at today is actually quite a difficult issue, isn't it? Right? It's a difficult passage. Uh, not only is it hard to understand in some points, but it's also hard to accept. Um, and the reason it's hard to accept is, well, I think the big reason it's hard to accept, well, okay, there's a few reasons. Lah. Right? One reason it's hard to accept is because it's a bit hard to follow. So I need you to work really hard with me. At the passage, keep your Bibles open, keep your notes open, uh, try and work, out, work it out together with me. Second reason it's hard to accept is because we don't hear it preached very often. Uh, the kind of truths that we find here uh, are not very, how do I say, not very, people don't like to talk about it a lot. Okay? Uh, so we actually, uh, but you know, when you do expository preaching, you work through passages of the Bible, and you come to the passage, you can't run away from it, lah. We've got to deal with it. Okay? Um, and I think the, the third reason is the hardest one, is that we are sinful, uh, and we don't naturally like to hear the kind of things that are in this passage, uh, because, because we are sinful. Um, so we're going to pray that God would help us uh, by His Spirit, uh, that He would be working in our hearts, that He would be uh, enabling us to understand, and not only to understand, uh, but to accept what He has to say. Uh, what he has to teach. Don't just take it on my words. Right? You work it out and look at the passage carefully yourself and see if what I'm saying is what the passage is saying. Right? And then we'll just take it from there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we know, Heavenly Father, that um, there are times when your word challenges us with things that we don't like to hear. And we pray that if that's the case for us today, um, that your Spirit will be working in our hearts, uh, causing us to bow before you as our great God and our Lord. Uh, please help me as I uh, try to teach this passage faithfully. Uh, please, please help me to do that. Uh, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here as we uh, grapple with this scripture together, um, that you will be uh, our guide and our teacher. Your Spirit will be working in our hearts um, and that we would in the end, um, be bowing before you. Uh, we know, Lord, that as we grow as Christians, um, oftentimes we, we, we do hit things that, that are hard, um, but we know that as we struggle with these things, uh, and as we learn to submit to you and your word, uh, then, then you grow us uh, in, in, in your likeness. And so we, we pray that you will be helping us as we struggle, that you will be growing us uh, and bringing us up to this next stage of of trusting you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we're starting this new series at the moment uh, on Romans 9 to 16. Yeah? Last, uh, last, last year, I think, uh, we covered Romans 1 to 8. Uh, and so for the next two months, we're going to go from Romans 9 uh, to the end of chapter 16. Uh, but let me just remind you, uh, in order to Run properly and uh, at, at Romans 9 to 16. Let me remind you where we've come from uh, in Romans 1 to 8, just briefly, uh, so we get the context of what we're doing. In Romans chapter 1, you remember we saw that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And we saw in the second half of chapter 1, uh, right up to the middle of chapter 3, that we need the gospel because we are sinners and we are facing God's just wrath against sin. In the second half of chapter 3, we heard about God's rescue. How, God, how Jesus died on the cross to take our place under God's wrath so that we can be declared not guilty. The technical term was justify. In chapter 4, we saw that we received this justification by faith. That is, by trusting in God's promises. And in chapter 5, we saw that since we are justified by faith, now we have peace with God. God has declared us not guilty. Now we are in good relationship with Him. We stand in His grace. And we look forward to glory. And we know that God loves us. Because we know that Christ died for us. And the second half of chapter 5, we saw it's quite reasonable that the obedience of just one man, Jesus, could deal with the sins of many to give us eternal life. Because we know the disobedience of just one man, Adam, led to death and destruction for many as well. When we went to chapter 6, 
we saw that we are no longer under, under, under the old realm. We've been transferred to a new realm and we've got a new boss. And so we live as slaves of righteousness, not slaves of sin anymore. And in chapter 7, we saw that living in this new realm means we're no longer under the law, but we serve God in the new way of the Spirit. And in chapter 8, we saw the Spirit leads us to holiness. It testifies that we are God's children. He helps us in our weakness to pray. And because we know that we are God's people, we know that God works everything for our good. For the good of those who love Him. And our greatest good is that we should become more and more like Christ. And so, in chapter 8, verse 29, we see uh, that... Well, verse 28, we see that the, those who love God, all things work together for good for them. For those who are called according to His purpose. Because those He foreknew, those He knew before the foundation of the world, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Become like Jesus, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. He called through the, the, the gospel. And those He called, He also justified. He declared us not guilty. And those He justified, He also glorified. Even though that's in the future, it's so certain that He can even put in the past tense together with all those other things. And so, we have verse 31 God for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who, verse 33, can bring any charge against God's elect? The elect, what election is choosing. God's elect are the ones who God has chosen. Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God has already justified. God has already declared us not guilty. No charges can stick. Or verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing, he says in verse 37 and 38. Nothing. Rule death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate those who belong to God, those who have been chosen by God, from the love of God in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that exhilarating? But, what happens about those who are not elect? What about those who are not chosen by God? What about those who weren't predestined to receive all these blessings. And come to think of it, that was most of the people of Israel in Paul's day, wasn't it? And that is the thing that really devastated Paul. Paul was really upset. And so from the exhilarating heights of verse 31 to 39 of chapter 8, he comes crashing down at the beginning of chapter 9. Remember, there's no chapters or verses in the original. It's one continuous thing. Where we finished last year joins straight away with where we're picking up this year in chapter 9. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 verse 39. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. 9 verse 1. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It comes crashing down. And why? For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, but for the sake of my people, I kind of wish I could be. If Paul could go to hell on behalf of the Israelites, he would. But he can't. There's only one person who experienced hell on behalf of others. That's Jesus. But His work doesn't apply to them because they don't believe. 
Which is so sad because, because these guys, they had everything. Verse 4. They are Israelites. And to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. All the stuff in the Old Testament that so clearly points forward to Christ. That was their heritage. But they rejected Christ. And all becomes meaningless for them. And not only that, they were the actual physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those people are. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised King, who is not only the promised King, He is God over all, forever blessed. Amen. They had all the advantage of the Old Testament. They even had Christ, God Himself with them in the New Testament. What greater advantage could God have given them? And yet the bulk of them were indeed accursed. They were cut off from Christ because they did not believe Him. They had no life. They were heading for destruction. But how can this be? Didn't God promise Abraham to, to bless his descendants? Didn't God promise that David would always, that his son would, would always be on the throne and, uh, and promise Israel that, that Israel would be reunited under the Davidic king and that his kingdom would be glorious? You tell me that the people of Israel in rejecting the Messiah means all God's plans got botched up and all the promises have come to nothing? Has the Word of God failed? Well, verse 6. But it's not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to not all Israel is what is Israel. What does what does that mean? You see, not everyone who is physically descended from Israel, from Jacob, is really one of God's people. There's the there's the nation Israel that, that kind of belongs to God as a nation, but not necessarily all the individuals in the nation really belong to God. It's like Okay, let's say, let's say this is time now, coming down here. And here's you've got your, here you've got the people of Israel. Okay, the physical, the, the physical nation. And within that nation, not everyone's, not, not everyone's actually one of God's people. Uh, you've got maybe a, a number of them. So there's you've got your nation. And there you've got those who, who truly believe. Who are really God's people. Alright, so you, you, you think about it in, um, uh, in the time of the Exodus, the nation comes out of Egypt, and what? They keep on rebelling, keep on complaining, keep on fooling, you know, with idolatry and sexual immorality and all those things. Why? Because not all Israel are, are, are truly God's people in their hearts. Or you think about the time of Elijah. Remember, he's in the he's in the cave, and he's crying to God, and he says, "God, you know, I'm the only one left. That's just." That's only me left. And everyone else is worshipping Baal. And God says, no, no, no. I have kept, was it 7,000? 7,000. I have kept 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Out of all the nation, Elijah's time, you've got 7,000 people who are truly God's people. And so, the reality that the promises in the Old Testament point forward to doesn't belong to everyone who is physically a Jew. It belongs to those who are the true Israel. The ones who are truly Israelite 
at heart. Right? So not all Israel is Israel. Not all descended from Israel are Israel. And, I mean, you know, it's like that in the church today, isn't it? Right? You can have people who belong to the church, come to church, might be signed the pink form, you remember. You might be someone who, you know, puts money in the box, uh, always comes and prays and sings and takes communion and all that, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're truly one of God's people. It doesn't necessarily mean that, 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 that your heart belongs to Him, that Jesus is your Lord. It can be in the physical people of God, the outward people of God, and not really be well, a Christian in your heart, isn't it? Well, it's the same thing to Allah. That's, that's what was going on. And so not all... Well, let me just say, if that's you, then repent. Turn to Jesus. Call upon Him for mercy. Submit to Him as Lord. Not all Israel is Israel. And so in chapter 9, verse 7, And not all the children of Abraham, because of they are... And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Right? Not everyone has got the promises or is children of Abraham just because they're physically descended from Abraham. But through Isaac shall your offspring be. So God made promises to Abraham and his descendants. Not all of them inherit the promise. You remember Abraham, at, at least at this early stage, got two sons. The first one is Ishmael. The second one is Isaac. And God says through Isaac, is the promise. Not Ishmael. Both descendants of Abraham, but only one is chosen to continue with the pro- to receive the promise. And, remember Isaac, he's not a naturally born child. Right? His birth is miraculous. His birth is a result of God's promise to a man and a woman who are far too old to have children. And so here you've got the example of the promise going down, not through the one who is naturally born, but from the one who is born of promise. Uh, and Paul picks that up in 9 verse 8. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So, so Sarah's son is because of that promise. Lah. Even among the descendants of Abraham, God decides who is in, who gets the promises, who doesn't. Happens to the next generation as well. Isaac has two children. One is chosen and one is not. Right? Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, that's Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, that is choosing, might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. See, it was God's choice that made Jacob, the younger twin, inherit the promise. And God chose Jacob when? Before the twins were even born. You know, the Jewish rabbis couldn't handle this. And so there are all kinds of stories going around how Esau was really naughty in the womb. But, But that misses the point, doesn't it? God is not choosing based on works. Verse 11. God doesn't choose depending on how good people are or or what they've done. Esau and Jacob, they hadn't done anything, good or bad, when God chose Jacob and not Esau. It was just God's choice. It's not a random choice. He didn't flick flick the coin and, okay, it's Jacob. right? It is a choice that he made, but it's not based on them, it's based on him. And that's the same whenever anyone gets saved. We are saved not because of... Wait for the bell. Without the mic, it's hard to compete with the bell. (laughs) 
Okay, so it's the same when anyone gets saved, right? We're saved not ultimately not because of what we do, but because of what God has chosen beforehand. And we sang about that just now, isn't it? And it's not a random choice. God doesn't just lottery, pull out one. God chooses in love. I don't know why God chose me. But I know it's because of God, not because of me. So, first question was, has the word of God failed? No. Hasn't failed. Why? Because the promises are to Israel as God's people, but it's not to Israel, it's to Israel. And so the fact that many of the Israelites rejected Christ doesn't mean the promises have failed. The promises continue and they will be fulfilled among the people of the true Israel. I see. And the true Israel is not the physical nation, but the people whom God has chosen. And it's always been like this from the start. Nothing to worry about. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, if it's from people God has chosen, then the question we want to ask next is, is that fair? Is God unjust? If God chooses some people to be saved and not others, is He being unjust? Well, that's the question in 9 verse 14. Chapter 9 verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Answer? By no means. By no means. It's like a very forceful, no! How can you say that? You cannot accuse God of injustice. It is, it is impossible. Right? To suggest that God might be unjust, that is, that is unthinkable. Go and wash your brain out. You do not determine what is just or unjust. You do not define justice. God does. He is God. And so what is just and what is unjust is is defined by Him. It comes out of Him. It is not to be defined by us as something else and then does He measure up to it? You think we can judge God? Crazy. If you think that way, then you have to repent of the way you're thinking. Because you're thinking that you're God. That you determine what is right and wrong. What is just and unjust. And you know what that's called? S-I-N, isn't it? God is God. He is the one who defines everything. Good, evil, just, unjust, everything is determined by Him. What is, what is goodness? What is justice? It all comes, springs out of His character. It all comes from Him. He is the source of it. He is our judge. We are not His judge. Justice is not an independent quality that's higher than Him. Justice flows out from Him. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Cannot be. But in our sinfulness, we are still not quite comfortable with God choosing some and not others, are we? So, let's take it away from ourselves for a moment. Right? Forget about us. Think about the angels who sinned. God punish them? Is that fair enough? Yeah? The angels sin, God punish them? Huh? Fair enough is that? They sin, they get punished. As far as we know, there's no plan of salvation for them. Is that fair? Fair isn't it? Of course. God doesn't have to save rebels. They sin, they get punished. As far as we know, no plan of salvation. That's it. Full stop. You can see that's, that's okay. Now, Bring it back to us humans. We sin, we get punished. God doesn't have to save us, does He? 
He could punish us just like He did the fallen angels. All of us are sinners. None of us deserve to be saved. If there was only justice and nothing else, then all of us will perish. And that would be perfectly fair. You could see that when you're talking about someone else. It's the same thing for us. That is justice. But over and above justice, God is merciful. Over and so God, over and above justice, expresses His compassion and His mercy upon whoever so He chooses. Now, He would never do it in a way that denies, that is incompatible with, with His character of justice because He is just. That is why the cross is necessary. That is why Jesus had to die for us to be shown mercy. But God can show mercy wherever He likes. And He can withhold mercy wherever He likes. Mercy is not justice. Mercy is over and above justice. Let's imagine this. Imagine, ah, I'm a big chetty. Alright? And all of you owe me a thousand ringgit. Okay? So, I come to Joanne and say, Joanne, want my thousand ringgit, please? And? She has to pay me a thousand ringgit, isn't it? Fair, right? If she doesn't pay me a thousand ringgit, I'll ask Warren to write a letter to her. Right? And, okay. But let's say, um, I'm thinking, ah, oh, yeah, Mr. Young, such a nice man. Such a... I like him so much. Huh? Don't tell her. I want to give you a present. 10,000 ringgit. Am I allowed to do that? Can, right? It's my 10,000 ringgit. If I want to give him a present, 10,000 ringgit. You know? So now, he's got 9,000 surplus. No problem. Does that mean I can't claim my 1,000 ringgit from Joanne? Oh, it doesn't. Right? This is justice. You owe me 1,000 ringgit? I ask for a thousand ringgit. If I want to show mercy and grace over and above justice to Mr. Young, I'm perfectly free to do that. Because grace, mercy is not, is not justice. It's over and above. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, you cannot demand mercy. God is not obliged to show mercy to anyone. But it's His nature to show mercy to those whom He chooses. Remember our Old Testament reading from the book of Exodus? In the book of Exodus, Moses asked God to show Him His glory. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim to you my name, Yahweh. And then He says the words that are quoted by, by Paul in verse 15 of chapter 9. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is God's character. That is God's glory. He shows mercy on those on whom He shows mercy. And so in the end, those who are saved are those whom God has shown mercy to. Those who are chosen not because of their decision, or their efforts, but simply because of God's mercy. It says in verse 16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Well, that's all well and good. God choosing to be merciful. When in choosing to give a big present to Mr. Young, well, at the same time also choosing not to give a big present to Joanne, isn't it? And, well, what about those who are not chosen? Is that God's choice as well? Well, yes it is, isn't it? You remember Pharaoh in the Old Testament? Remember Pharaoh? 
Right? In the time of the Exodus, uh, God is wanting to rescue his people and bring them out of Egypt. Uh, and, 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 and God sends Moses to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let them go. He keeps on saying, no, 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 no. And you know, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He will not let God's people go. And the text sometimes says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And in other places it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Both are true. God is sovereign. He's in control. Pharaoh, he is responsible for his actions. The fact that Pharaoh is responsible for his action doesn't mean for one moment that God is not in control. The fact that God is in control doesn't mean that Pharaoh is not responsible for his actions. You can't see them. It's like looking this way. You look this way. Lah. Look this way. Look this way. Lah. You can't, can't, can't see both at the same time. right? God tells Pharaoh that. In Exodus 9, God tells Moses once again, to go and deliver the message to Pharaoh, to, to for, tell the people to go, let them go. He says to Moses, to go and tell Pharaoh that he could have easily have destroyed him first. He could have destroyed him and his people way back before. And God didn't do that. Why? Not because God wanted to show him mercy and save him, but because God wanted to show His power and glorify His name in the way that He judged Him. And Paul quotes that in verse 17. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why was Pharaoh spared? Not for repentance and salvation, but for judgment. His sinful heart was hardened so that he would receive God's judgment in such a way for treating God's people the way that he did, that God would be glorified as his power in judgment was seen. And so Paul concludes in verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's hard, isn't it? Yeah. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought because we thought that we were in control. We thought that we could choose God or reject Him. We thought we were masters of our own fate, but... He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. So, can God really judge? If God is in control, can we still say that we are responsible for our actions? Oh yes, God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility don't cancel each other out. They're both happening at the same time. You know that, right? Evil men put Christ on the cross. Right? They will face judgment. Unless they repent, they will face judgment for what they've done. And yet, oh, God sent Christ to the cross. And He was in control of the whole situation. And Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. And so, in, in this one event, you've got both evil men doing evil and God working good. Same people, same event, same time. Humans are responsible for our actions, but God is in control. Let me give you an illustration. Now, before I give you an illustration, promise me not, you try not to misunderstand all right, this illustration. Uh, though it doesn't properly picture all the, everything about the relationship between God and us, I just want to give it to you to illustrate how ultimate control and responsibility can be different. Uh, and not in the same person. Okay? Imagine, imagine you're writing a story. So, you're the author of a book. Alright? Who, anyone here likes writing novels? Anyone here write novels? Write stories? No? Okay. 
Never mind. Just imagine, huh? No. And you decide to make yourself one of the characters in the story. You can do that, right? Yeah. So you're there in the story. You, you write about yourself in the story and all these other people in the story. Uh, and suppose one of your characters in the stories is Gary. Alright? And in the story, Gary kills Han Fei. Okay? Now, it's not you, lah. Huh? You're, you're not Gary. Okay? Forget. Just not you, alright? Now, in the story, you're there to beg Gary not to kill Han Fei. Come on, Gary, please don't do it. Don't do it. Because that's the kind of person you are. That is your character. That is your nature. You don't want Han Fei to die. You don't want Gary to go and pull the trigger. But, he does it anyway. Alright? And, and Han Fei, the character, is dead. Now, who is responsible for the murder? Well, in the story, you're not responsible for it, are you? It, it, it's Gary. Gary's the character who, who killed the murderer. Who, 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 who killed Han Fei. And if it's a story about justice, then Gary, in the story, is the one who's going to hang. But at the same time, you are writing the story. You are in ultimate control of the storyline. You wrote in the murder. On the one hand, the character had full moral responsibility. Within the story, he couldn't decide whether he's going to pull the trigger or not. No one forcing him to commit the murder. And at one level in the story, you didn't want the murder to happen. You begged and pleaded with Colonel Mary, with, with Colonel Gary not to kill Han Fei in the study. Huh? But... Ultimately, it happened within your will as the author. Because it's your story. Now, like I said, don't read too much into the illustration. Alright? not saying God's relationship with us is exactly like that. Far more complicated, I'm sure. But what I'm saying is that even within our own experience, when you have two worlds interacting, you can get into a situation where ultimate control and moral responsibility are not one and the same thing. Within the framework of the story, you are not the murderer. You could never be justly prosecuted for the murder. But when you step back into the higher reality, when you look beyond the world of the story to the real world, you realize that every character is fulfilling the purpose of the author in telling the story. It's a little bit like that with God. We are responsible for our actions. We make real choices in this world and we face real consequences for our actions. But when you look at the higher reality, when you look beyond this world to the perception of heaven, you understand the perspective of heaven, you discover that God is ultimately in control. He raises up Pharaoh for his purpose. He has mercy on those he chooses. He hardens those he chooses. And in the final analysis, it all depends on him. Justice is done. God is just. And he will deal justly. God is not unjust. But in the end, he is in control. Our next question. If it all depends on him at the ultimate level, can he really judge? Why should some people be destined for judgment? And you say, well, they, they sin because they're destined to sin. How can, how can God blame them? Uh, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And the answer to that question, uh, that's the answer you don't want to hear. Lah. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? God is, God is a creator. He can, he can do whatever He likes. The, the one that is molded cannot complain about the molder. The pot cannot complain about the potter. It's, it's His pot. Verse 21. Has the, has the potter no right over the clay? 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. Prophets, think of a potter, right? You know a potter? Potter is one who takes the clay and makes pots, lah. Okay? He's got his lump of clay. Takes his lump of clay and divides it. In one part of it, he makes this beautiful pot. He a lot of time, makes this beautiful pot. He paints it nicely and he put it on his shelf in the living room for all to see and it comes worth a whole lot. Right? With the other part, well, he needs a pot for his rubbish outside. Okay? So he takes the pot and simply makes and puts it outside. Put it there for the rubbish to go in and very quickly it gets knocked around, you know, uh, and thrown away. Lah. Can the clay complain? No, of course not. Clay can't talk. But even if it could talk, right, it couldn't complain. Why? Because it's up to the potter what, what he does with it, isn't it? He's the potter. The clay is the clay. The character in the story can't complain about the author. The author's the author. It's his story. And we can't complain about God because he is God and we are not. So what? If God makes some pots for destruction and some for mercy and therefore glory. Is he allowed to do that? If that's what he does, is he allowed to do that? That's what Paul's asking, right? In verse 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He prepared, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Wow. Very complicated sentence. I haven't even finished it yet. Alright? Take a bit of time. Why would God make something only to be destroyed? Verse 22. Because He's desiring to show His wrath and make known His power. That's same with Pharaoh. That's what happened with Pharaoh, isn't it? He wants to show His anger against sin on Judgment Day to be seen to be the holy and righteous and just God that He is. And why would he want to show his great power and anger against sin? Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. That is, he wants his justice to be seen by those pots made for mercy. He wants those pots made for mercy to see how glorious he is as his character of justice is seen. He wants to show them how merciful He is, how gloriously gracious to them He is, where they see for themselves what they deserve and realize what He saved them from. He wants to show them how gloriously loving He is as they see the destruction of the wicked and and know that Christ Himself bore that punishment for them on the cross. And in order to do that, He patiently endures the ongoing sin and rebellion of pots made for destruction. He doesn't destroy them straight away. As he could. But he patiently stores up wrath for the end. Doesn't give it immediately, like with Pharaoh, so that sin will increase in the full measure given on the judgment day. And so the contrast between those who are destined for mercy and those who are destined for destruction is so evident and, and the ones who are destined for mercy will be so thankful for being saved from it. Now, Paul saying, what if What if that was the case? What if, verse 22 again, what if God designed to show His wrath and make known His power has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory even among us whom He has called not only Jews but also from the Gentiles? What if that was the case? Can God do that? Well, of course he can. He's, he's God. He can do what he pleases. And what he does is always right. And it's right that he does what brings him glory because, because he is God. And the glory of God is the highest good. That is the most important thing. More important than the universe 
More important than life and death. More important even than heaven and hell. Everything. There is nothing more important than the glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God. Not about us, it's about Him. Now, it's easy to get the wrong idea here. Right? Because why? Because we kind of think of God like a big human being. Yeah? And it's not right for human beings to seek glory for ourselves, is it? It's not right that I should seek my own glory. Why? Because I don't deserve it. Why? Because I'm not God. It's not right that you should be working towards your own glory. If I see you doing that, I'll say, Why? Because I know that you're not God. But God is God. He's in a different category. And God, by definition, deserves all glory. That's why it is so terrible that people seek glory that doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And so to display His glory, to show His character, that is the most appropriate thing, the most essential thing in the world. That's the most right thing that could ever be. The glory of God, that is, that is the best, the rightest, the, the most appropriate thing. Once again, we still don't like that. Because why? Because we are sinful. Because even though God is God and we are not, we get a little bit jealous even of God. And we want to usurp God's place and glorify ourselves. But God is God and we are not. The universe does not exist to please us. The universe exists to glorify Him. So what if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His powers, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order that He might make the riches of this glory for the vessels of mercy, which were prepared beforehand for glory, even among us whom He has called, not from Jews only, but from the Gentiles? What if God does that? If God does that, He is perfectly right to do that. It is not for us to judge Him, it is for Him to judge us. Now, we've come a long way, haven't we, from the initial problem of the Jews. Remember how we got here? Paul is sad, he's in anguish for the people of Israel who are unsaved. But it doesn't mean that God's word has failed, because not all Israel is Israel. It's the chosen ones. Or to use the technical term, it's the elect who are really Israel. These are the, these are the true Israel. Chosen not just because of their race, but because of God's mercy. But then in verse 24, we see it's not just Jews who are chosen to be part of this true Israel. Because those whom he has called is not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Wow! So part of this true Israel... He's going to include Gentiles, people not from Israelite blood. So you've got to come in like that. Right? And so people who are not even racially descended from Abraham are going to be grafted in, brought in to this true Israel. Those who are not God's people are going to become part of God's people. And that's, well, that's what happened in the book of Acts, isn't it? Uh, Romans 9.25 As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will become sons of the living God. Now, those words were actually first applied to unfaithful Israel, but that is exactly also what God says to us Gentiles. Because now, some of us Gentiles, who are not descended from Abraham at all, 
are chosen to be brought in to this true Israel. Weren't part of the people of Israel, but now we've been brought in to inherit the promises. And we're going to see about that a little bit later on, uh, not today, in, in, the, in the few days, in the few weeks ahead, especially when we come to Romans 11. I will talk about all about the Gentiles being grafted in uh, and how and what does it mean for who is the true Israel today. All right, all that's coming up. But for Israel as a whole, the situation is different. Many people in the physical Israel are not saved. And also this comes from the Old Testament. Verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His tenants upon the earth fully and without delay. A remnant is a small number. Just a few who are saved. Just a minority. And even them are saved because of God's grace. Verse 29, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? They are wicked cities in the Old Testament. And God wiped them out completely with fire from heaven. And when God brought Israel to judgment, they could well have been like that. That's what they deserve. But, but God in His mercy left a few. God showed mercy over and above justice to these few. Because in His plan of salvation, He had decided to save these few. And so we're kind of like back where we started, aren't we? The Gentiles coming in, but the majority of the Israelites unsaved. Leaving Paul with great anguish in his heart. I know the argument does go on from there. Uh, like I said, we're going to see about Israel and election over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but our journey today has answered these three big questions. Has God's promises to Israel, has God's promises failed? No. God's promises are for God's people. It's just that not the whole of Israel are the true people of God. God's promises are for these people inside here. Okay? We, are the, we are the heirs now of God's promises. Uh, and is God unjust? No. Uh, mercy is over and above justice. You cannot demand mercy. You can only be grateful for it. And can God judge? Yes, He can. Because He is God. And we are not. And it's both in His judgment and His mercy that He is glorified. Right. Well, how do we respond then uh, to what we've heard today? Uh, can I say before I talk about response. I said this again, I'll say it again. Right, this is tough stuff, isn't it? It's not easy. Right? I think it's part, of, it's part of our growing and maturing as Christians that we come across things in the Bible that we, in, that we how do I say it, that we um, naturally don't like, that goes against the grain. Right? Uh, it's, and it's as we struggle with it and say, oh yeah, is this really what the Bible is saying? It's really a, and, you know, and am I going to submit to God or not on this issue? Am I going to, in the end, going to say, okay, like God is God. Right? And just struggle with it until I can say, okay, I trust you, God. Uh, and that, and, the, and that actually is part of our, our growing as a Christian. Uh, as, as, uh, and, and learning and growing and coming up to the next level of, of maturity. Uh, as a Christian, in trusting God and, and, and putting Him at the center and not ourselves. You know, it's, it's part of that process. Lah. So if it's hard, we understand. You know, this is, we all struggle with this, actually, don't we? Um, but okay, let me say, if you're not a believer here, okay, if you're here tonight and you're thinking, oh no, you know, like that, I'm not chosen, lah, say law. Right? <laughs> I got no hope. May as well give up. Huh? Right? Uh, friends, if that's the case, you have spoken too soon. Right? Because you haven't read the end of the story. You're still alive, right? Story's still going. Who knows if God will have mercy on you and save you? In God's good plan, you may be one of the chosen ones. Nobody can tell. So what do you do? God's sovereignty... Human responsibility. Take responsibility for your actions. God holds you responsible. 
You worry about your responsibility bit, you let God worry about His sovereignty bit. Yeah? You keep on rejecting Christ, and you will find that in the end, God has not chosen you. You turn to Christ as Lord, you trust Him as your Savior, and you will find that actually, you only did that because before the foundation of the world, God had chosen you. So what is God's word for you today? Not despair. Repent and believe the gospel. But what about those of us who are trusting in Jesus? Those of us who are saved by God's grace and brought in and... Well, how should we respond? First of all, we should stand in awe of the God who holds everything in His hands. Stand in awe of the God who holds everything in His hands. We may or may not like what we've heard today. And if we don't like it, it's because of our sinfulness. But God is God. He is the one who holds our lives, our future, our eternity in His hands. We should know our place before Him. should not presume to judge Him. He judges us. We should not presume to tell Him how to order the world. He is God and we are not. And so the word is, shut up and worship. (laughs) Secondly, we should be grateful for the mercy He has given us. Mercy, we've seen, is over and above justice. Cannot be demanded. Can only be pleaded for. We deserve God's condemnation. Justice would have put us under God's judgment. It would have given us the same judgment as the pots that are headed for destruction. But Jesus took our judgment for us on the cross. And God has been merciful to us and brought us into His kingdom when we weren't even from that line. God has chosen us. He has called us to be His. We didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. God had mercy upon us, not because of us, but because of Him. And so we must always, always, always be thankful for His mercy. Thirdly, we should mourn for those who are not chosen. All of us know people who don't follow Jesus. And some of them are people that we love. Now, we never know that. Maybe they will follow Jesus. Some of them might have already died without following Jesus. It is very, very hard to consider these things when we think about them, isn't it? But that is exactly the context in which Paul is writing this, isn't it? He is really gutted that his fellow Israelites, the people that he loves, the people in his family, the people he has grown up with, the people that that they are lost. He writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. God has no pleasure in the death of a sinner. Neither should we. Believing in predestination is not supposed to make you hard and uncaring. God isn't like that. Jesus wept over Jerusalem when He knew what they would do. Paul wanted to be a curse for the sake of his people. The doctrine of election is a painful thing when considering those who are not elect. It's it's right to mourn for them. It's a great comfort when considering those who are. Fourthly, and finally, we should glorify God for His wisdom. Because in the end, When all is said and done, God knows better than we do. He is God and we are not. 
He has set things so that in his final judgments he is able to show his perfect justice, his amazing mercy, and that mercy is seen even more clearly in light of his judgment so that in the end we will know God in both his holiness and his love and his glory will be seen by all. And we know that there is nothing that is better and nothing that is more important than that. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen.